We're going to dive into God's Word, so if you've got a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. For the next 16 weeks, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of John. I, I trust that it's going to be a time of shaping our thoughts around the mission and purpose of Jesus and identity of Jesus. Uh, what a glorious gospel, the gospel of John, right? If you, somebody comes to faith, what's, the, what's one of the typical low-hanging fruit places that you send that person, you give them a Bible if they don't already have one, and you say, hey, here's a great place if you don't know where to start. Start in the gospel of John. I hope we're going to see the reason why that's even a good intuitive place for a brand new believer to begin. And I want to begin by just getting us to think about something. This is in your outline, in your notes, so you just fill this in just to frame our thoughts at the beginning of our study. Does our life as a church reflect clarity about the truth and clarity about our mission? Clarity about the truth and clarity about our mission. So let's just take that first part for a second. Do we have, or do you have, just take it personally, do you have a true knowledge of who Jesus is? Not that we're kind of feeling our way intuitively toward knowledge of Jesus, but we're getting it straight out of his self-revealing word. Do we have a true knowledge of who Jesus is? Because that's what the Gospel of John is really all about. So, uh, just a quick exercise. Hold your finger right here in John chapter 1 and flip over to John chapter 20 with me for just a moment. We'll come back to John 1 in in a second. But in John 20, uh, the apostle John, the writer of this gospel, gives you a gift. And it's a gift in the form of saying, I'm going to tell you in a really clear, crisp sentence why I'm writing everything I'm writing, why I included everything I included in this particular gospel. I'm telling you the reason. So John chapter 20, beginning in verse 30. John is writing and he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written, here's the purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if we want a true knowledge of who Jesus is, John says you've come to the right place. That's everything I've included in this gospel is included so that you might know him and believe in Jesus as the Messiah and in believing have life in his name. So that's what we want to study. We want to look at Jesus, who he is, his identity as it's revealed in this gospel. So that's question number one. But the second question is this. Not only do you have a true knowledge of who Jesus is, but what about the mission of Jesus? So have you embraced his call on your life? In other words, do you know what he wants you to do? Jesus calls us to enter into a life of discipleship, right? Listen, Jesus has something for us as his followers, He's not calling us just to stand around. He's calling us, hey, come with me. Follow me on mission. Enter into this mission. So in John chapter 10, for example, Jesus is going to say, I came to give you life and life abundantly. But that life, and we see this so clearly as we walk through John's gospel, that life is given by Jesus on the path of discipleship. It's given by Jesus to his disciples as we follow him on the path of discipleship. We join him in mission. So you might ask the question, how, real specifically, living on mission, how do I talk about Jesus with people? 
Right? Really basic question when it comes to engaging our city, our friends, our family, our neighbors, wherever, right? How do I talk about Jesus with people? John, this is a beautiful thing. John lets us watch Jesus talk about Jesus with people. He lets us watch Jesus have conversations with all kinds of diverse people, with rich people and poor people and men and women and people who think they're very good, people who think they're very bad, people who think they're too far gone, and people who think they're fully righteous and they don't need any help. And we listen, we get to eavesdrop on Jesus himself as he tells people where life is. It's found in him. So we're only gonna be in this Uh, for 16 weeks, which isn't a short series, right? A lot of our series are about eight to 10 weeks. So this is longer than a lot of our series. But look, we could spend years, I mean, literally, we could spend years to dig out everything that's here. We could be here for a long, long time. We're not gonna be here for a long, long time because we've got other places to go in scripture as well this year. Hopefully, Lord willing, we're gonna study Ephesians, study Jonah this year. So we're gonna go to different parts of the Bible. 16 weeks here, hoping to end and come to the resurrection account on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. So there's some method behind that, but 16 weeks means that we're gonna have to be a little bit selective in these passages and not deeply exhaustive of everything that's in these passages. And I'm just saying this, that we want John 20 verse 31 to be a key or a a guide that leads us to see this thread of doctrine and mission, who Jesus is and what he calls us to do. We're gonna look for that particular thread 16 weeks through this series. And I hope that it's gonna lead us to be deeply grounded in the truth of who Jesus is and wonderfully contagious in the world as we live on mission for the glory of Christ. But for John, it all begins right here in chapter one, verse one, it all begins with the identity of Jesus. He doesn't get the cart before the horse. He says, I want you to, before you see what he's doing, I want you to see who he is. So here in chapter one, Apostle John, in essence, says, I want you to believe in Jesus and I want you to have life in his name. Here's who he is. If you'd follow along as I read, John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light. That John is John the Baptist, by the way. So John the Baptist came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son 
from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a magisterial passage this is. This is, the, this is a big part of the prologue of John's gospel, which that just simply means that John takes his entire gospel account and distills it into these verses. So it's all compressed into this deeply concentrated vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. So if we follow John's lead right here at the opening of his gospel, we have two truths to rehearse this morning. Very basic truths for the Christian faith, but essential, vital truths for every one of us to grasp if we would know Jesus and have life in his name. So church, don't lose your grip on these vital truths. Number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So spoiler alert, when John talks about the Word, that's Jesus, right? (laughs) The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, The Word that was with God in the beginning and was God in the beginning, that's a reference to God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God who became flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So Christmas isn't, uh, you know, half God. You know, there's a baby in the manger, he's half God, he's half man. The the mystery is greater than that. He's fully man and he's fully God. He didn't become God, he became and took on humanity, but he always has been the eternal God. It's a glorious, awesome mystery. Right there in the first verse, in the beginning was God. The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John's theology, um, one, he's not averse to theology. Theology, he's not saying theology, shmeology. He, he starts with theology. He, he loves this stuff. And his theology isn't hard to find. He doesn't hold it close to the vest. It takes him exactly one verse to deliver the punchline. Jesus is God. The Word was God. Which is to say that John starts in the deep end of the theological pool, right? This is, John's gospel is not a zero-entry pool. You ever been to a zero-entry pool where you come in and it's like, it's this deep and then it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. No, he just just pushes you into the deep end. Right in verse one, you are are swimming way over your head. Um, This is heavy stuff, the incarnation, grappling with the truth of the incarnation. So parents, you know, Christian parents who... Uh, who want their children to understand the Bible. Parents get nervous when curious questions emerge in, in their kids, right? They always get nervous around three topics, the Trinity, the Incarnation, and Solomon's concubines, right? They're just there are these, these moments, and we know that we're reading, we're in that section of Scripture where it's a little dicey, right? We're going to have questions about the Trinity and about the concubines and about the Incarnation. Incarnation questions are not easy to answer. You ever been asked the question, by a girl or a boy, one of your sons or daughters, or maybe you work in children's ministry, and they come up and they say, now why does Jesus eat? Is God hungry? I didn't know that God is hungry. Or Jesus said he didn't know something. I thought God knew everything, so how do you square that? I thought he knew everything, and yet he says, no one knows that but the Father. So how do we square that? Right? Did Jesus know math in the manger, or did he learn math after the manger. Those are questions about the incarnation, the relationship between his full divinity and his full humanity. John 1 contains massive, deep theological truths, statements 
uh, concerning the faith once for all delivered to the saints, right there in the first two verses, there are perhaps not two more theologically loaded verses back-to-back in the entire Bible than John 1, 1 and 2. This is the stuff that creeds and confessions are made of. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our heads are just spinning from the beginning. There was a, a fourth-century heresy called Arianism, Uh, that argued that Jesus was a created being. He was God-like, but he was not God. He was not the eternal God. He was a created being, and that Jesus was not in the beginning with God in the same sense that God was in the beginning. But this is a truth that we see so clearly throughout John's gospel. It's in your notes. Jesus knew himself to be the eternal Son of God. He knew himself to be the eternal son of God. This same Jesus in this very gospel is heard saying things that made people pick up stones, not because they didn't understand him, but precisely because they did. They understood him when he said, for example, in John chapter 8, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Those were fighting words. That was him talking about his pre-existence prior to the patriarch of Israel, which Abraham's time was 2,000 years before Christmas morning in Bethlehem. And Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus prays in front of his disciples in John chapter 17, and he says this, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. That would have been mind-blowing to his disciples. Nobody ever gets to pray that way. Nobody ever gets to say, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And yet Jesus said it. He was not ashamed of that fact. So Arius was quite simply wrong when he claimed that Jesus was God-like, but not God. He was wrong. Arius also, incidentally, was allegedly slapped by St. Nicholas for saying that. That's a, that's a Santa Claus I can get behind, I, right? He, there was a, an aggressive posture toward, the, no, that's not true. Jesus understood himself to be the eternal God. So you think about the relationship of how the gospel writers unpack the person of Jesus and his identity. So Matthew's gospel, for example, connects the arrival of the Christ child to the promise that was made to Abraham 2,000 years earlier. Luke's gospel goes beyond that promise made to Abraham. Luke's gospel traces the lineage of the babe in the manger all the way back to Adam. John, not to be outdone, John ties a string to the manger and walks you back, back before Daniel and David and Gideon and Abraham, all of them, just keeps going, all the way through the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve, before let there be light, and John stands you, if you will, at the precipice of eternity past and just says, he just keeps going back there. As far back as it goes, he goes. In the beginning, back there was the word. And all the way back there into eternity past, he keeps being with God, at God's side, and he keeps being God. He was God. These was verbs in verse 1 and 2, 
this is kind of technical moment, so you grammarians, you're going to geek out with me for a second. You're going to love it, and the rest of you will be back in a minute. But, so these, these was verbs are in the imperfect tense. So they're highlighting a continuous state of things. So one scholar put it this way, that in verse 1 could be translated, quote, in the beginning, the word was wasing. He just kept going in a continuous state of wasing. He just continued to exist ongoingly. As far back as you go, the word keeps being with God. As far back as you go, the word keeps being God. And what does that mean for us, right? So the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. So what does this mean for his followers? This is in your notes for us to review. It means this. The practical implication of this is you're in good hands. What an understatement. You couldn't be in better hands. Jesus is God. He is fully divine. He is the almighty Lord. Martin Luther the great Protestant reformer of the 16th century, he said the key to living the Christian life is that the Christian must come to terms and learn this truth, to let God be God. The Christian must learn to let God be God, which is another way of just saying, stop auditioning for God's role. He gets to be God. There is a massive distinction. The the biggest distinction in the universe is the distinction between the creator and the creation. It's where it all begins, and this text is clarifying. He's in the creator circle. He's he's that. He is, as the early church father said, totaliter aliter. He is in another class, a class all his own. Nobody is like him. There's a wonderful book by a writer named Zach Eswine. It's called Sensing Jesus, and I love the subtitle. Life and ministry as a human being. And really, a lot of the book, he's grappling with this idea of what happens if we stop auditioning for God's role. What happens if we remember the song that we sang, many of us growing up in church, little ones to him belong, they're weak, but he is strong. If we remember the nature of our relationship with God, that he gets to be strong and we get to be weak. And we don't mix up those roles. And in one of my favorite moments in the book, here's what he says. He talks about a conversation he's having with a friend. I constantly feel that I am out of my depth, my friend said. Me too, I said. We both stared quietly into the distance for a moment. Then a few questions occurred to us. Why do we lament the fact that we do not know everything? Why do we speak of our being out of our depth with sadness and heavy sighing as if we are failing something we are supposed to attain. It is as if we feel we are supposed to repent for having limits with our knowledge, I said. Who has taught us this, he wondered. Where does this expectation to know it all come from, he asked. We paused and then laughed with shared embarrassment. We concluded that if we were to say to God, Father, I constantly feel out of my depth, God would gently ask, and why is that a problem? How true is that for our own lives? Some some versions of Christianity, I call it triumphalism because it's a big label, leave you with the impression that if you're not feeling on top of the world, something's wrong. 
if you're not feeling fully in control of your life and all the planets orbiting around you in their proper distances, that something's wrong. But friend, we don't find believers like that in the Bible. That's not the history. The ancestors of the faith don't, aren't perfectly in control, not a hair out of place. Look, look for them in the Bible. See if you can find any people who exist in this state of unclouded serenity. Where are they? Because if you go back to the original patriarchs, the original parents of the faith, Abraham and, and Sarah, right? And what happens in that moment as the, they hear the very first promise, and what do they do? <laughs> they bust out laughing. That's why the promised child gets named, they laughed, right? He's named that Isaac because that's what their first response was. Moses has anger management issues. David, oh my goodness, he's front page news. When he goes bad, he goes bad, front page news, bad. Peter, in the New Testament, Peter's a bundle of contradictions. Paul feels great despair. He said, we despaired to the point of life itself, we despaired of life itself. He said, we felt the crushing weight of the care and burden of the churches. Paul can't pray away the thorn of his flesh. He tries three times, and it's futile. He can't get it off. And he ends up having to submit to this, this principle that, that I boast in my weakness because there the sufficiency of Christ's strength is seen. Your faith can't be strong this year if you keep confusing your job with God's job. Jesus is God. Jesus gets to be all-sufficient. He gets to be all-powerful. He gets to be all-knowing in 2020. He gets to be fully in control. That's his job description. It's not your job description. Don't aspire to that job description. Don't audition for it. Our job is to trust he can do his job. That's the nature of faith, trusting he can do his job. Not that I can do his job, he can do his job. Eyes up and out. So the question is, how's your faith? That's why the message is named this. It's, it's, it's based on, so if you read John 20, verse 30 and 31, and John says, here's why I included this. I want you to believe. Then that means every text that we look at in this Gospel of John should posture us to believe he's the one. He's the answer. He's the one in whom we trust. So how's your faith? Do you have a big enough Jesus to sustain you this year? Believe Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus became one of us. That's the two truths that this text holds in its hands. Jesus is God and Jesus became one of us. Go ahead and fill in that next point while you're there. We can't imagine the humility involved in the incarnation. He became really, genuinely human. He wasn't God in a man suit. He had lungs, real lungs, a nervous system, a human brain, right? This is Jesus. He became a man. He wasn't, you don't imagine Jesus kind of over here in the kiddie pool. He's, he's with all the other toddlers, Hebrew toddlers, and there's Jesus and he's parting the waters in the kiddie pool, right? That, that's not what's going on here. His own family members didn't believe he was the Messiah until after he died. He appears to James. It's one of the first places he goes is to James. His mother and his brother show up at the door and they're like, listen, the party's over. You need to just come home and chill out and stop this whole kingdom thing, right? They, they disbelieved. They had their own struggles and doubts, he came in genuine weakness. He came as a, as a baby. God, 
Imagine it. I mean, this is the mystery of mysteries. God teetering down the hall, cheered on by Joseph and Mary. Imagine the, the humility and the incarnation. You just remember, the writer of the Hebrews says, he was like us in every way except one. He didn't sin. So, every other human experience you and I have, he had. Genuine humanity. He entered all the way into the human condition. It wasn't a photo op. He came here, God with us, Emmanuel. Several, several years ago, my boys and I, uh, we got really excited about um, a show. It was a new show at the time, and it was called Man vs. Wild with a guy named Bear Grylls. And Bear Grylls would just be literally dropped out of a helicopter into some place in the world that he had never seen before. He didn't know where he was. They just dropped him out of a helicopter into some place, and he had to find his way towards civilization. And so he had, you know, he had history in this, and he would bring a, a camera, and he would look at the camera at night, and he'd make this, you know, ramshackle tent out of leaves, obliging leaves of trees nearby, right? And he would just survive out there. And then he'd have the night vision camera and he'd be all tired and he'd just say, it's so hard to be out here. And he has this beautiful British accent, you know, and he's saying all this at night and talking about, hey, you can hear the Jaguars back there. And that was a terrible accent. But anyway, that's, he's talking about all the things that he's experienced. And we all, like me and the boys, we just wanted to be Bear Grylls. Like how awesome would it be to be, to be Bear Grylls? Um, and then we found out that it was all a hoax, right? There was a photo that released to the internet where there was a show. We had watched this show where he's crossing, Bear Grylls is crossing over this deep cave out in the wilderness, you know, and he's crossing over this deep cave. Well, a wide-angle photo leaked to the internet, and what you see at this wide-angle photo is he's crossing this deep cave, and about a half a mile away are just cars whizzing down the interstate. They're literally just right over there to over his left shoulder. And, and then word broke that he wasn't even sleeping out there in the wilderness. He was sleeping in nearby hotels, right? So it's just none of it was, the Mason boys, we were devastated. We're like, is anything true? Like, like his name probably isn't even Bear. Like the, the accent's fake. He's from Chalmette, Louisiana, you know, he... None of it is true. He's not roughing it in the wild. You know, he's going out in the wild. He's taking a picture, and he's sleeping at the Hilton. It should be called Man versus Hilton, right? We're just devastated by this. In verse 14, we, we have this statement that's so rich with Old Testament imagery. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the word tabernacled among us or pitched his tent among us. It's rich with Old Testament history. In the Old Testament, when God rescued Israel from Egyptian slavery, they were a people who were sojourning. They didn't have a home yet. They were walking toward a homeland, but they were, they were sojourners wandering through the desert. And they followed this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire through the desert. And when the pillars stopped, they stopped. And they would set up camp. And there, you can just imagine, as far as the eye could see, two million strong Israelites in all directions, as far as you can see, there are tents going up all over the place, 12 tribes of Israel. And they had, if you read through Numbers chapter 2, you can even see there's a divinely ordered sleeping arrangement for all of the families of 
Israel. So you've got Reuben's family over back in this direction and Ephraim and Gad, and they're all in their assigned places, their tents going up, and right in the middle of all the tents of God's people is God's tent, the tabernacle. He, they slept in tents, he slept in tents. He didn't sleep at the Hilton. They, he was with his homeless people sojourning with him. And this is the picture of the incarnation. You will call him Emmanuel, God with us, God pitching his tent right in the middle of ours. He's, he moves into the neighborhood. It's not a photo op. He's really here. Scripture speaks of Christ's descent into humiliation. You see these three phrases. In birth, he's dependent on the care of his mother. In life, he's rejected by his own people, and in death, he's hanging on a cross. This descent into humiliation, one of the oldest hymns of the Christian faith was the Christ hymn, and it's recorded in Philippians chapter 2. It it says this, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you're new to Christianity, this is where the action is. This is the center of the whole story of the Bible, that that God didn't drop you know, evangelism tracks out of heaven to save us. He moved in. He became one of us. He, as the, as the great hymn said, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. He came all the way here. He humbled himself to save us. Skeptics read the Bible and find violent scenes in the Bible that offend our human sensibility of what justice is and what's right and what's wrong. And they'll read and find these places, these violent scenes in the Bible. But the violent scene that should shock us more than anything else is God on a cross. That is the shocking, violent scene in the Bible. Acclaimed Oxford scholar, Os Guinness, said, who ever heard of a God with scars? See, in the ancient world, the gods did the wounding. They didn't take the wounds. A movie came out in 1987 called The Last emperor, and it was about a child who was chosen to be emperor over all of China, and this child is incredibly pampered from the smallest age growing up. A thousand eunuchs are constantly in his service doing his bidding, and his brother comes later on in life, his brother, who's a commoner, comes and visits and sees all these people, all the subjects of the kingdom, and they're fawning over his, his brother, and he asks this question, what happens when you do something wrong? And the emperor says, when I do something wrong, the servants get punished. And then he illustrates that he takes a vase that's nearby from the Ming dynasty and he throws it on the ground and it shatters into a thousand pieces. And you just see the faces of the servants just go white with anguish. They're absolutely horrified. And the moment 
Right after that, you hear in a minute, one of the servants is being beaten to death for the transgression of the king. It's just the opposite picture of Christian faith. In the Christian gospel, it's not the servants that are beaten to death for the transgressions of the king. It's the king who's beaten to death for the transgressions of the servants. Who ever heard of a God with scars? And Jesus bears his scars eternally. The only thing in heaven that will tell us we lived in a fallen world are the nail prints in his hands and his feet. It's a wondrous thing what God has done. Look, what does it say to us? It says, there are officially no other ways to heaven. That becomes so clear in John's gospel. Jesus stands there in chapter 14. I am the way. There's not another one coming. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. He prays in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass. And heaven's silence confirms that the answer is, there are no other ways. You have to go through this. You have to suffer in their place. There is only life found in Jesus Christ. In him, as this text says, in him was Life. So outside of him, there can only be death. How can we expect life outside of the one in whom there is life? There can only be death outside of Jesus. That's why we put our faith in Christ alone. We can't create life and happiness from scratch. We don't have that ability. We can't create life and happiness on our own terms. That's what the term repent means in the Bible. It means you can't pull this off on your own and you're running in the wrong direction. Repent says, stop running away, turn around. And faith says, turn around and run to the Savior, run to Jesus. This morning, maybe that's what you need to do, right? What, what a perfect day. It's January 5th. We're right at the beginning of the year. What a perfect time for you to run in the direction of the one hope of the world. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible assures us. Friend, believe today. Trust in him today for forgiveness, for eternal life, for hope that's found in him alone. Jesus says, in this letter, he says, here's how it stacks up. I'm gonna tell you how it stacks up. So there's an enemy, and he wants to steal and kill and destroy you. And then there's me, and I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. In other words, Jesus is saying, what do I have that you don't want? I have life. Come to me and you get life. He tells the Pharisees, here's your problem. You're searching the scriptures. You think that in them you have life, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I'm the life. The scriptures are pointing you like a sign in my direction. I'm where the life is. Come get the life. It's found in me. What's this mean, this truth? If we bring it on board, this truth of Jesus became one of us, what's it mean for followers of Jesus? It means this. Jesus knows and Jesus saves. Jesus knows and Jesus saves. You ever go through something horrific in life, a painful experience, and then you sort of stumble, if, as it were, across the path of another person with a similar story, and that person gets it, right? What a gift that is to bump into somebody who, who gets it. Let's be honest. That's why there are AA meetings and millions of people going to them because they walk into a room. I might not get all the answers I want, but these people get it. None of us have to pretend. We came in here for a reason. These people get it. Nobody's faking in here. 
What a sad thing that sometimes in the church you come in and you sit with other people and everybody pretends life is awesome and I'm awesome and I'm doing great and my spiritual cape is flapping in the wind behind me in my small group and, and we pretend that all of us are just doing so great and there's no real authentic engagement with the risen Jesus who saves us. He gets to do the saving. <laughs> That's biblical Christianity. That, that's how, by the way, that's how the New Testament relates the truth of the incarnation to our lives. In Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. It relates the truth that he came to the truth that he gets it. He can finish your sentences. He's been there. He's experienced all of it. There are going to be moments in your life where the most precious truth is Jesus knows it seems like nobody else understands, but Jesus, my Savior, my friend, knows. And when you pray, he finishes your sentences. He's saying, I know, I know, I've been there. I'm not leaving you. I read a story about Joseph Scriven. He's an Irishman. He was born in 1819. He experienced a number of tragic events in his life. He lost two fiancés. One of his fiancés, his first fiancé, he lost in 1843, the night before they were married. Just unbelievable tragedy that, that befell this man. Two years after he lost his fiancé the night before his wedding, he, he, uh, he feels the Lord is leading him to move away from his homeland where all his family was in Ireland and move over to Canada to do ministry there in Canada. He gets over there, and then a few years after that, he gets a letter from his mom that his mother is terribly ill. And he goes, and he, he was a poet, so he would process his pain in writing. And he picked up a pen, and he wrote a poem called Pray Without Ceasing. He had no intention that this, or no knowledge or dream or aspiration that that poem would be translated into dozens of languages set to music and sung by millions of people throughout the world since 1855. You know it perhaps as, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Processed his pain in the presence of a friend who gets it, who knows. He's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, and I know this friend, rely on this Friend, that truth that Jesus entered in, it wasn't just incarnation theology, it was life-changing for him. How's your faith? Is the truth of the incarnation life-changing? Because you have a friend. He's here. He's near. By the time that John writes this gospel, he's been walking with Jesus, his friend, for nearly 60 years. We saw this when we studied his letter, 1 John Late last year, all of John's closest friends are dead. All the 12 boys that took pictures, you know, selfies on the beach in Galilee with Jesus, all those guys are dead. His own brother, James, two sons of Zebedee, they were inseparable. His own brother, James, was the first to be killed of all the 12 apostles. He was martyred under Herod. Peter, Paul were killed 
some 20 years before John writes this gospel. Only John remains, and he picks up his pen under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, and he tells you how faith grows. He says, I want you to believe in the name of the Messiah, and in believing, I want you to have life in his name. And what he writes right here at the beginning is he said, here's where your faith starts. In the beginning was the word. It's the same exact words that begin the book of Genesis. The same three words begin the book of John. In the beginning, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created through his spoken word. In the beginning in John's gospel, the word came. What's John saying? He's saying there's a new beginning. There's a new creation starting in him. Jesus is God. Jesus became one of us. Jesus gets it. Jesus knows. Jesus is sovereign. His promises will not fail you. Friends, we're at the threshold of a new year. Jesus Christ doesn't want your dutiful obedience this year. He's not trying to make you more religious this year. That is not his objective. He he wants to breathe life into people this year. He wants to flip the script. He wants to give hope. He wants to meet you in your hour of trial, right? He wants to make all things new. It's what he's been doing for 2,000 years. He wants to do it again all over this room and lives all over this room. So so here's the the prospect before us at the outset of 2020, looking out over the unknown of this year. Let's start the year right. How's your faith? Where are you looking? Are your eyes up and out where they should be to the one who came? Let's believe. And by believing, let's have life in his name.